Delicious, meat nutritious, and the snack that packs a real protein punch, wonderful pistachios. Each one ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value and making wonderful pistachios one of the highest protein nuts out there. But perhaps more than that, I love all of the flavors they have. Their sea salt and vinegar ones are my favorite when I'm craving that flavor, but still want to keep it healthy. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors like chili roasted, honey roasted, smoky barbecue, and jalapeno lime, to name a few. Perfect for enjoying with family or friends and taking them with you on the go. Whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snacking game today. So fill up with a healthy snack when hunger strikes. Visit wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Optimal Living Daily, episode 1415, The Disease of More, part one, by Mark Manson of markmanson.net. And I'm Justin Mollick. Happy Saturday. Welcome to one of the only podcasts in the world where blogs are narrated to you for free with permission from the authors and websites, an award-winning podcast. Thanks to you for voting. And I'll keep this intro nice and short for the weekend, so let's get right to it and start optimizing your life. The Disease of More, Part 1, by Mark Manson of markmanson.net. Success is often the first step toward disaster. The idea of progress is often the enemy of actual progress. I recently met a guy who, despite having a massively successful business, an awesome lifestyle, a happy relationship, and a great network of friends, told me with a straight face that he was thinking of hiring a coach to help him reach the next level. When I asked him what this elusive next level was, he said he wasn't sure and that's why he needed a coach, to point out his blind spots and show him what he's missing out on. Oh, I said, and then stood there awkwardly for a moment, gauging how brutally honest I was willing to be with someone I just met. This guy was very enthusiastic, clearly ready to spend a lot of money on whatever problem someone decided to tell him he had. But what if there is nothing to fix, I said. What do you mean, he asked. What if there is no next level? What if it's just an idea you made up in your head? What if you're already there and not only are you not recognizing it, but by constantly pursuing something more, you're preventing yourself from appreciating it and enjoying where you are now? He bristled a bit at my questions. Finally, he said, I just feel like I need to always be improving myself no matter what. And that, my friend, might actually be the problem. There's a famous concept in sports known as the disease of more. It was originally coined by Pat Riley, a Hall of Fame coach who has led six teams to NBA championships and won one as a player himself. Riley said that the disease of more explains why teams who win championships are often ultimately dethroned, not by other better teams, but by forces from within the organization itself. The players, like most people, want more. At first, that more was winning the championship. But once players have that championship, it's no longer enough. The more becomes other things, more money, more TV commercials, more endorsements and accolades, more playing time, more plays called for them, more media attention, etc. As a result, what was once a cohesive group of hardworking men begins to fray. Egos get involved, Gatorade bottles are thrown, and the psychological composition of the team changes. What was once a perfect chemistry of bodies and minds becomes a toxic, atomized mess. 
Players feel entitled to ignore the small, unsexy tasks that actually win championships, believing that they've earned the right to not do it anymore. And as a result, what was the most talented team ends up failing. More is not always better. Psychologists didn't always study happiness. In fact, for most of the field's history, psychology focused not on the positive, but on what people up, what caused mental illness and emotional breakdowns, and how people should cope with their greatest pains. It wasn't until the 1980s that a few intrepid academics started asking themselves, wait a second, my job is kind of a downer. What about what makes people happy? Let's study that instead. And there was much celebration because soon dozens of happiness books would proliferate bookshelves, selling millions of copies to bored, angsty, middle-class people with existential crises. But I'm getting ahead of myself. One of the first things psychologists did to study happiness was a simple survey. They took large groups of people and gave them pagers. Remember, this was the 80s and 90s. And whenever the pager went off, each person was to stop and write down two things. Number one, on a scale from one to 10, how happy are you at this moment? And number two, what has been going on in your life to cause these feelings? And what they discovered was both surprising and actually incredibly boring. Pretty much everybody wrote seven, like all the time, no matter what. At the grocery store buying milk? Seven. Attending my son's baseball game? Seven. Talking to my boss about making a big sale to a client? Seven. Even when catastrophic stuff did happen, mom got cancer, missed a mortgage payment on the house, Junior lost an arm in a freak bowling accident. Happiness levels would dip to the two to five range for a short period, and then after a certain amount of time, promptly return to seven. This was true for extremely positive events as well. Lottery winners, dream vacations, marriages. People's ratings would shoot up for a short period of time, and then predictably settle back in around seven. This fascinated psychologists. Nobody is fully happy all the time but similarly, nobody's fully unhappy all the time either. It seems that humans, regardless of our external circumstances, live in a constant state of mild, but not fully satisfying happiness. Put another way, things are pretty much always fine, but they could also always be better. But this constant seven that we're all more or less always coming back to, it plays a little trick on us, and is a trick that we fall for over and over again. The trick is that our brain tells us you know, if I could just have a little bit more, I'd finally get to 10 and stay there. Most of us live most of our lives this way, constantly chasing our imagined 10. You think to be happier, you need to get a new job. So you get a new job. And then a few months later, you feel like you'd be happier if you had a new house. So you get a new house. And then a few months later, it's an awesome beach vacation. So you go on an awesome beach vacation. And while you're on the awesome beach, you're like, you know what I need? A pina colada. Can't a get a pina colada around here? And so you stress about your pina colada, believing that just one pina colada will get you to your 10. But then it's a second pina colada, and then a third, and then, well, you know how this turns out. You wake up with a hangover and are at a three. But that's okay, because you know that soon, you'll be back at that seven. To be continued. You just listened to part one of the post titled The Disease of More, by Mark Manson of markmanson.net. Thank you to Mark. I'll finish the rest in tomorrow's episode and so true from my personal experience. Besides things like ongoing pain, like physical pain, I feel like this does tend to happen. We put ourselves at around a seven, maybe down to a five to represent perfectly average. And then we'll have those high days and the low days, but stay around average usually. 
but then something big will happen that could be seen as a major life improvement, like a new car or something like that. What always happens is that the new car becomes your new average over time. So that becomes the seven, and then you start thinking again that a new car, after like a couple months or maybe a year, will provide that 10. And maybe it does for like a week or a month, but as humans, we get used to everything, things become routine and normal. I noticed this myself when I tracked my mood every day for a few years, everything was average. And my life changed. I moved, got new electronics or a new car. And yeah, a few days here and there might've increased from those purchases, but long-term it went back to average. But the most consistent spikes up to eights, nines, and tens were actually not from more things necessarily, but just by being around people I enjoy spending time with. Those were the highest rated days for me. Something to think about and something to try for yourself if you're interested. Thank you for being here and listening every day, including the weekends, and I'll be back tomorrow to finish up this post and where your optimal life awaits. Hey, this is Dan from the Optimal Finance Daily Podcast, which is a lot like this show, except more focused on personal finance. Justin handpicks the best posts he can find from blogs and authors like Ramit Sethi, Mr. Money Mustache, and more, and I read them to you five days a week. So if you enjoy this podcast, come on over and subscribe to Optimal Finance Daily too. And together, we'll optimize your financial life. You've been listening to Optimal Living Daily. Be sure to hit the subscribe button to stay up to date on each new episode and head to oldpodcast.com. That's oldpodcast.com for a free gift as well as more actionable tips and resources to help you maximize your potential. Thanks for joining us. And remember, your optimal life awaits.